0: good morning if you have your bibles let's turn to colossians chapter 2 colossians chapter 2 as we jump back into our series in colossians that we've titled jesus first place in everything colossians chapter 2 We're going to begin in verse 13 for some context and read through the end of the chapter. We'll focus our time this morning on verses 16 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on Asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Sherlock Holmes and his, uh, his friend, Dr. Watson, decided to go camping one evening. And after dinner and, and some time around the campfire, they decided to turn in for the night. A few hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his friend. Watson, look up at the sky, he said, and tell me, what do you see? Watson replied, I, I see millions of stars. Holmes says, what does that tell you? And Watson thought for a moment and then, and then he responded. Well, he says, well, well, astronomically, it, it tells me that there are, there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of stars. Astrologically, I observe that the sun is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately 15 past 3. Hor- uh, theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically... I perceive that we're going to have a pretty nice day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? To which Holmes replied, Watson, you fool, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) We tend to complicate things, the Christian life is not complicated. Even though you may be sitting here this morning and you might be asking why it seems so complicated, why it seems so frustrating, why your life is so filled with confusion and uncertainty, maybe guilt and shame and fear. Even though it seems like you're doing doing all the right things. You're doing all the right Christian things but just something it doesn't seem it seems complicated. And from this passage, we see a bunch of people trying to complicate Christianity. We see a lot of false teachers trying to complicate Christianity. Because when Christianity and spirituality become primarily about how we act, how we feel, or what we look, at, look like, then we have substituted the objective Christ for the things of the subjective world. The question in this passage comes down to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Is he enough? Is he enough for your spirituality? And if he is, if if, if you're living a life that says, yes, Jesus is enough for me, then we will pour all of our effort, all of our prayers, and all of our hopes into knowing him. But if we are living a life that says Jesus isn't enough, then we're going to pursue those things which make us feel better about ourselves. Or make us look spiritual. And if that's you. Then be warned. You will never experience the fullness of Christ. In your life. If you substitute him for anything else. There are three dangers to avoid. From this passage. Three dangers to avoid. If we want to experience the fullness of Christ. But before we get there. I want to talk a little bit about. What's going on in this passage. Um, Because. We have to understand what Paul is addressing. We don't know exactly what the false teaching was. We don't exactly know what the Colossians were tempted to believe. It was this, it was this mixture of, of Jewish legalism, pagan mysticism, and a bunch of other worldly philosophies kind of bundled into this one big package and, and, and given to the people. It was, a, it was syncretic. It was synchronized. It was all this stuff just put together from a bunch of different places and a bunch of different ideas. And these are dangerous, as we will look at these in just a moment. they're dangerous because they lead us away from our foundation. They lead us away from Christ, which is why we started in verse 13. These things lead us away from that which Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. And so we have to keep that in mind as we we look at these three dangers to avoid. If you want to experience the fullness of Christ in your life... In your life, here are three dangers to avoid. Let's get right into it. Number one, legalism. And the problem here with legalism is it has no substance, as we see in verses 16 and 17. Now, human nature thrives on religious duties. I am a recovering legalist. Legalists inflate their ego Legalists like to stand in superiority superiority over, over others because of their own religious accomplishments. And legalism is a slave master, and it'll keep a Christian in joyless bondage. And so the Colossians are being told that in order to be, in verses 16 and 17, that in order to be a part of God's people, they had to submit to a program of spiritual development apart from Christ. That's legalism. And so who was in for God's people and who was on the outside was determined by adherence to man-made rules. Now notice, it was man-made rules that stemmed from the law of God. Man-made rules that stemmed from God's word. So we we read the passages here. They prohibited certain foods and drink, and they demanded adherence to religious events. So we do have to understand a little bit of the Old Testament here. Because there were, if you remember back in Leviticus chapter 11, there were certain foods that God declared unclean. And God actually told the Israelites, here are the things you can't eat and you need to abstain from these certain foods. But even in the Old Testament, as God gave them these food and drink laws, as he gave them these different festivals and uh, celebrations to, to observe, even in those... God was never telling them that what they ate was the, was the essence of spirituality. That was never God's message. So what he was doing is he was giving these food and drink laws and these, these uh, different uh, events and, and festivals as a way to mark them off from the other nations. And as a way, as we look in here, to, to prepare them for the coming of Christ. And so now Christ has come. And he, it says in verse 17, he is the substance. So the shadow is no longer needed. Christ was using these things to mark off the people of Israel from the other nations and to prepare them for the coming Messiah. And so now, as the new covenant people of God, we're we're no longer a people group like Israel was. And so here's how Paul describes life under the new covenant in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. It's on the screen. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the Jewish regulations were a temporary design for a specific time period. And so they had these food and drinks, uh, they had these different weekly, monthly, uh, yearly, monthly, and weekly festivals and things. Again, markers for who who are the people of God. Who is Israel? Who is the, the people group that God has chosen to be his own? Now here's what I want to emphasize, and here's what you need to understand. Now the contrast that Paul is making here is not between whether or not God has expectations for his people today. He's not saying at one point God had expectations for his people, but now he doesn't. That's not the contrast Paul is making here. The contrast he is making is between a shadow and the substance. That the shadow pointed to Christ and he is the substance. That the things that we read about in the Old Testament were a a dim outline of the New Testament redemptive truths. So that kind of gives us the basis of what we understand about the Old Testament. But here's the thing about legalism it looked good on the outside. So these people had devised a system uh, to enforce the Old Testament law, but they also devised a system that took God's law beyond its intended meaning. They devised a system that took God's law beyond its intended meaning. They created prohibitions that went beyond God's intention, and that's why legalism paralyzes and confuses and frustrates so many Christians. Here's what legalism does. Legalism attempts to bind the conscience to standards that go beyond Scripture and are divorced from Christ. Legalism attempts to bind the conscience to standards that go beyond Scripture and are divorced from Christ. Don't let anyone, anyone, impose on you a spiritual program that is divorced from Christ. And you want to know how you'll know? You'll know whether or not a spiritual program is divorced from Christ. Because Christ has no spiritual programs. (laughs) He came to give life. And that they might have life and joy abundantly. You may have standards more strict than scripture. But you will never have standards that are better than Scripture. Now, the religious leaders and the Jewish, the Jewish people, they had, they had standards that were even far more stringent than God's intention, even with the Old Testament law. And so they took God's law from the Old Covenant given on Sinai, on food and drink, how you dressed, and what, and what you did on, on, what certain things you did on certain days. And they made that, these, these extra things that went beyond the purpose of God's law. And they made that the measurement for spirituality. And it's the same today. The legalist says Christ plus works equals either salvation or even growth in Christ. If you want to grow in Christ, you need him, but you need, you need, you need all this extra stuff. But it's deceptive. Because here's why. Christians and non-Christians alike can adhere to man-made rules and religious duties. There's no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian when it comes to just simply the adherence to man-made rules. Our hearts love performance-based Christianity. Because it's something we can do. It's something that we can do and something we can brag about. It's something that we can show off. It's about our accomplishments and our, and our spirituality, our perceived spirituality. Legalism prioritizes duties owed to man over duties owed to God. Legalism says that a deep, fervent relationship with Jesus isn't enough to satisfy God. And there's a couple of illustrations we get in the New Testament. And we won't take time to turn there, but one is the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Remember what he came to Jesus. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? You know, you know the law. You know your Old Testament. You tell me, what, are you, what do you read? You know, and Jesus even tells him, here are the things you do. You know, honor your father and mother. You know, uh, uh, don't commit adultery. Don't lie. You know, don't do all these things. Keep the Sabbath holy. And how does this man respond? He says, I've done it. I've done it all since my youth. And then what does Jesus say? You're still lacking something. And Jesus says, How about this? Go sell all your possessions. And what did the man how did the man go away? He went away sad. Because he was a rich man. He had many possessions. Now think of this. He came to Jesus. He had the performance. He wore the religious uniform, but his heart was far from God. He had no substance. Another way this is illustrated in the Bible is uh, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Now this parable should be called the parable of the prodigal sons. Because the father, who in this parable pictures God, had two prodigal sons. One was the immoral lowlife and the other was the Pharisee. If you notice in that story, if you go back and read it, neither one of them were with the Father. They both came from a distant land. Just one was a little bit further away. One was way out. The other was just out in the field, but he was close or closer. And you remember the story the, the, the prodigal, as we see him, the one who squandering all, all the wealth, comes back, and, and the father runs out and embraces him, and he throws a big party because his son, who was lost, had been found, who was, who was dead, is now alive. And, and what does the older brother come in? He comes in in anger and hatred and says, hey, 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 I didn't squander your money. I've been here doing all the right stuff for you. And later in in that very chapter, we, we read that the Pharisees perceived that he was telling these parables about them. Jesus was saying, you think you're so close to God because you do the right things or you look the right way? You are misunderstanding what it means to be in God's family the older brother in that parable was just as much of a prodigal as the younger brother. He just wore the right clothes and looked better on the outside. The Old Testament law, again, just the Old Testament law, God's commands—they are not bad, but how the false teachers used it was bad. Legalists go beyond God's word. To set standards. Nothing wrong with that yet. Do I have standards in my house that I can't point to the Bible give you chapter and verse? Yes. Do I have my kids? Do I say you need to obey even though I can't point to a chapter and verse and say this is exactly what it says in the Bible. This is what it says your bedtime should be. This is what it says about how you eat your food. This is what it says about, you know, what the, whatever. No. I absolutely, do, absolutely have standards in my house that can't be strictly tied back to scripture. There's nothing wrong With that, but the legalist uses those extra biblical standards as the measure of spirituality, and they divorce it from Christ. Because with legalism, we can measure our maturity and we can brag about it, but it's deceptive and empty. And you ought to be careful. Don't ever be intimidated by a legalist. And like I said, I am a recovering legalist. Still trying to recover, but there's no substance. And if you want to experience fullness of life in Christ, avoid legalism. Secondly, there's another danger, mysticism. And the problem with mysticism in verses 18 and 19 is that there's no nourishment now he says, let no one disqualify you. So this is an athletic term. This is, this is a term, it pictures an umpire where he disqualifies a contestant because he broke the rules. And so these false teachers were trying to get the Colossian church to buy into things and, and, and there are these people disqualifying them. Say, no, 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 no. You broke you broke the rules of what it means to follow Jesus. You broke the rules of of spirituality. You broke the rules of when it comes to asceticism and worship of angels and visions. You're not doing the right things to like get in touch with God. So you're disqualified. Until you have some experience with God, you'll never be close to him. You'll never really know Christ. And so this asceticism, or maybe your Bible says false humility, it brags about how much we've given up. Angel worship, that it says here, happened because they believed that by invoking angels, that was the way to ward off evil. So Paul equates that to angel worship. And the visions were just that. They were visions of God of secret messages, of higher insight and knowledge, and that's what they were supposed to be pursuing. And so they prided themselves on their spiritual minds and experiences. Experiences. So in legalism, it's all about how I act. In mysticism, it's all about how I feel. It's all about my experiences, and this is around today, people who seem to be stuck in their Christian life. Or maybe they're stuck in sin. And maybe they're, they're just waiting on God to just, you know, magically pull them out. They're looking for a second round of grace. Justin Martyr, who commented on this very passage about 100 years after it was written, he, he says this, he says, Many spirits are abroad in the world, and the credentials they display are splendid gifts of mind, eloquence, and logic. Christian, look carefully and ask for the print of the nails. Now I want you to stare at that last line. Christian, look carefully and ask for the print of the nails. See, when it comes all about experience, just like in legalism, it's a, it's a divorce from Christ. It becomes about how I feel about eloquence, about this logic, about this higher experience. Look carefully and say, where are the nails? Where's Christ? And so many Christians fall into this, they say, I don't need Christ. I just need God to make me feel spiritual. Like if I just felt spiritual. That's why I'm at church today. I'm just hoping, you know, by doing this, I can finally feel spiritual. You say, I don't need Christ, I just need to to feel better about myself. That's why I read my Bible. Just hoping God shows me something where I can feel better about myself. You may say, I don't need Christ, I just need to stop this one sin. Just this one sin. If I can get rid of that one sin, God could just snap his finger, whatever, then I'll be good. Or I don't need Christ, I just need, I just need some, if I just had some dramatic experience with an angel or some other otherworldly spiritual encounter. I mean, that, that's what I need to get me feeling right. And what Paul is saying here is, you need Christ. You need Christ. I mean, angel worship, one, is prohibited in scripture. Paul never paraded around the vision he had when he wrote to the Corinthians. And these people have this false humility. Notice it, it's puffed up without reason. It was kind of like kind of like going around and saying, I am the most humble person I know. I am so humble, you should all bow at the feet of my humility. That's what they were doing. And the same goes for today, where mysticism is all about emotions and experience. You'll, you'll hear people talk about how their, their spirituality was triggered by a sunset, or music, or even some religious ceremony, or, or how they, they felt God's presence in some encounter with nature. And the emphasis with mysticism is, is placed on having some sort of immediately, immediate spiritual experience apart from a steady, disciplined submission to Christ. Christ. It was a substitute for spiritual nourishment. Notice what it says there at the, at the end of verse uh, 19. It says, it's, it's by holding fast to Christ, and the whole body, we're nourished. There's no nourishment from these experiences. Just like, there's not, there's not a special meal out there that, you know, one day I'll give my son, who's four years old, and he'll just automatically turn into a man. You know, there's, just, there's just nothing out there. No, but no boy turns into a man by all of a sudden he's just a boy one day and then you just give him this special meal and then all of a sudden boom he's this full-grown man how does a boy become a man he eats sometimes he eats proper nourishment every day for two decades and then he's fully grown If you're caught in any sin and you just think, I am the most immature Christian, feast on Christ and nourish your soul with him for the next two decades and you will marvel at what God can do. Doesn't sound very exciting, does it? I'd rather God just maybe use a church service. You know, maybe just I showed up one Sunday and, you know, maybe he snaps his finger and boom, done. We can't have the attitude. Remember that old commercial? Finish it for me. It's my money and I need it now, right? You just call J.G. Wentworth. Eight, seven, five, I can't remember now. Uh, But you just call J.G. Wentworth. It's my money and I need it now, right? It's my spirituality and I need it now, God. Let me call you up. That's, that's the attitude of so many Christians. It's my life, it's my maturity, and I need it now. Feast on Christ for decades, and God will turn you into a man or woman after the very heart of Jesus. We must hold fast to the head. We have to draw our spiritual nourishment from, men, from them, from him. And it even talks about here the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. We, we have the body of Christ here, the church, people using their spiritual gift to serve one another. And we're drawing on the spiritual nourishment through the Bible, through prayer and worship. And the false teachers, were are trying to get them away from Christ. That makes weak Christians. Weak Christians are those whose spirituality is measured by rigid rules and nourished by emotional experiences. That's a weak Christian. Weak Christians are the ones who are separate from Christ. So we can't be driven only by experiences. And yes, there were men and women in the Bible who had an encounter with God and it changed their lives. And guess what? If you encounter God through his word, it should change your life. But what's going on here, and and yes, emotions are very much a part of the Christian life. Jesus was one of the most emotional people ever to walk this earth. He experienced every single emotion fuller and deeper than you and I ever will. But it always came from truth. It was always based on truth. And these mystics are saying there's something more, there's something better, there's something easier, there's something quicker. It's intolerant of sound biblical exegesis and steady discipline. And they look for visions and experiences outside of Christ. They're more concerned with sermons that they hear giving them an emotional experience than drawing them near to Christ. Emotions must always follow truth. The the emotions of Jesus always followed truth. They cannot be the means of truth. Now here's a phrase mystics will use most often. The Lord told me, have you ever said that? The Lord told me I should tell you something. The Lord told me I should do something. Even some pastors use this phrase to coerce people out of money. You know, we have the example of the wacko televangelist Kenneth Copeland, where he told his church that they needed to give him millions of dollars to buy a new jet, since, quote, you can't talk to God on a normal plane. You know, there it is. If in order, I can't can't talk to God. I've got too many people around me, you know. And so if I want to have this relationship with God, then you need to give me millions of dollars. Jesse Duplantis, another wacko said that God told him he needed a plane, quote, in one of the greatest statements the Lord ever told me. Imagine that. The greatest statement the Lord ever told him was that he needed a new plane. He goes on to say, um, where he says, God said, Jesse, you want to come up here where I'm at? Duplantis responded to God, what do you mean? To which God allegedly said, I want you to believe in me for a Falcon 7X. So I said, okay, but the first thing I thought of, well, how am I going to pay for it? And guess how he paid for it? He went in front of the church and said, I had an experience with God, and here's what God, God, the Lord, told me. And you might say, those are extreme examples, but we can fall for it, and we can fall for people's experiences and pursue the same if we're not connected to Christ. There is no higher life. There's no higher life. There is Christ and him crucified and the fullness of life that comes through him. That's what there is. Beware. Beware of those times you feel close to God when you're disconnected from Christ. Beware of visions. If you go through the Bible, visions did not leave people with warm fuzzies. Go through the book of Daniel. Every time he had a vision, he got sick. He got knocked out. He got terrified. He wanted them to stop. Isaiah, the same way. He had a vision and he fell on his face. We don't see that today. Nobody who's had a vision of heaven, a visit to heaven, a visit to hell, or whatever, nobody's falling on their face. They're making money. Legalism is about how I act. Mysticism is about how I feel. But there's one final danger we need to look at. And that's asceticism. That's in verses 20 to 23. It's similar to legalism. But the problem with asceticism is there's no value. So he says you've died. He says if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why are you still submitting to worldly regulations? What he's saying is there's no need to be ruled by anything other than Christ. Every Christian has died to this world. And asceticism, which like you said is is similar to legalism, betrays true holiness by dealing only with the physical. Asceticism is rigorous self-denial. And normally it's rigorous self-denial in order to earn God's favor or forgiveness. And so before the great reformer Martin Luther was converted, he pursued this very lifestyle. And he tried to earn God's favor, and he, he wrote about his experience. Listen to this. He said, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing, literal freezing. He said, the frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance uh, of the monastic order in my austere life? So what he's, I was pursuing God. God was supposed to take note. He says, I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. And elsewhere he would write, he said, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous work I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. They just, they don't work. Paul says verse 21, it's, it's the don't, 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 don't. That's your life. Don't, 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 don't. And the ascetic tries to accomplish in the flesh what only Christ can accomplish. They base their life off of heartless commands and even beat themselves up. For transgressing their own strict rules. Can I encourage you if you, have a, if you have a habit of cussing yourself out when you look at how inadequate you are if you have a habit of hurting yourself because you don't live up to the standards you think you should be living up to I want to encourage you, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you don't need to appease God. You are free to enjoy the benefits that Christ has won for you in his death. A life of rigorous self-denial and even self-harm is not the plan that God has for you to grow spiritually. Yes, there is a thing as as godly self-denial. Many missionaries and Christians go without, but they don't do it to gain God's favor. Or they don't do it to gain spirituality. They do it out of love for Christ. Listen, for those of you who feel like you're just the scum of the earth, and you feel like God is standing over you in judgment, even though you know Christ and you believe in him, God knew who he was saving when he saved you. The reason God will never turn his back on you is because he already turned his back on Christ. And if you're in Christ, you don't have to harm yourself, beat yourself up, cuss yourself out. God is not ashamed to be your father. For freedom Christ has set you free, so don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. We look holy, don't we? It's like Matthew 6, verse 16 says, where Jesus is warning. He says, When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces with their fasting so they can be seen by others. That's their reward. You realize he just said, Their reward is that they look really dumb. That's what he said. That's what he said. I just noticed that. That was insight I just got. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is all essentially self-worship. The Christian life is all about, first off, new desires. And when a sinner is truly converted, they're made a new creation and those new desires, and that's what makes them pursue Christ. Notice the very last phrase here it says this 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 religion this asceticism and even severity to the body it says it looks good but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh as a matter of fact we could argue it feeds the indulgence of the flesh when we don't see the beauty of christ we're going to pursue the petty our flesh loves the petty the worldly the sinful And your flesh can be conquered only by Christ and nothing else. If you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this is what you can go to. You can go to legalism and mysticism and asceticism and try to find out all these ways to to find God. No man, no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to Jesus. Believe that he died and rose again for you and you will be saved. Legalism is concerned about how I act, but it has no substance. Mysticism is concerned about how I feel, but offers no nourishment. Asceticism is concerned about how I look, but carries no value. Christianity is concerned about who I am in Christ, and offers fullness of life. Which life are you living? Let's pray. Father, I pray she would just all, just draw us close to Christ. Death no longer has its grip on us. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism—they no longer have their grip on us. So, Lord, loosen the grip that so easily pulls us away from Christ. And Lord, may our lives be all about who we are in Christ and the fullness of life You offer. In Jesus' name, Amen.